0: Americans must be prepared to defend themselves from hostile armies, navies, air forces, and not least, soldiers in cyberspace. With that in mind, in 2019, Congress created the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, the CSC. Its mission, to develop a strategic approach to defending the United States in cyberspace against cyber attacks of significant consequences. The CSC operated successfully for two and a half years publishing its flagship report in March 2020. It issued more than 80 recommendations to reform U.S. government structures and organization, promote national resilience, operationalize public-private collaboration, and preserve and employ military instruments of national power. Many of those recommendations, by no means all, have been implemented. At the CSC's planned sunset, the commissioners launched the CSC 2.0, a project to support implementation of outstanding recommendations, provide annual assessments of such implementation, and conduct further research and analysis on cybersecurity issues. It's a critical project because there are still many gaping holes in America's cyberspace defense capabilities. To better understand what is being done and what still must be done to defeat this evolving threat, we're joined by retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, who served as the executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission? He's now senior director of FTD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation, CCTI, which houses CSC 2.0. Also with us is Jiwan Ma, a program analyst at CCTI, where she focuses on this new and very important project. They recently co authored the project's annual report on implementation which examines the state of efforts to harden our national security in cyberspace. We're glad you're in cyberspace with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. All right, before we jump into cyberspace, let's introduce you to our Foreign Policy audience. Admiral Montgomery, you're a sailor. You're supposed to know about wind. You're supposed to know about waves. You're supposed to know about sextants. Especially, you're supposed to know about Sextants. So how did you become a cyber warrior? What was your cyberspace odyssey?
1: Yeah, thanks. It is a little unusual. Um, My last job uh, in the uh, uh, Navy was as the director of operations at U.S. Pacific Command. So that's all the operations of Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine units in the uh, Pacific. So from Hollywood to Bollywood and the Arctic to the Antarctic is we like to say there. Um, One of my deputies was the person who ran cyber operations uh, for the command, the J6. And so uh, my working with her, I began to over a three and a half year period, got a very strong understanding of the military side of cyber operations and uh, both on the defensive and offensive side. Uh, Later, I went to work for Senator McCain on the Senate Armed Services Committee as policy director. So one of my professional staff members that worked for me, was a cyber policy professional staff member. Um, that person uh, left the staff. And it was a time when Senator McCain was ill, so we didn't hire a replacement. So I had to take on the mantle of the cyber. So I pushed through a full national defense authorization cycle of cyber provisions. So I had both the military experience and now I had the government experience on cyber. And uh, in a in a developing field without a lot of senior people with expertise, that probably left me with a lot of ex- expertise, at least in the minds of Senator Angus King and Representative Mike Gallagher, who are the, uh, who had been selected to be chairman of the uh, commission and subsequently selected me to be their executive director. Oh, that's
0: pretty fascinating. And, and Juana, how did you get into uh, the arms race in cyberspace?
2: Originally, it started from my first job out of college where I was doing executive assistant work. I was working with one of the CTOs at Harvard and I really liked working with their IT and the cyber folks, got into the research part of it. And then I wanted to go to grad school. So I went to grad school for cyber. That's how I ended up here.
0: Went to grad school for, for cyber specific, not, not like
2: cyber and defense,
0: cyber and defense. But where do they, where do they, where can you major in or do graduate work in that?
2: I went to Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs.
0: Oh, right. I went there too, but we didn't have, I don't think, we barely had computers then.
1: They were still using rocks and chisels (laughs) back then. Exactly, yeah. yeah.
2: (laughs) And it's actually really funny because in grad school, I started studying the commission's work and presented to Mark. He was on the panel for my grad school project, so I got to talk about one of the recommendations to him.
1: Yeah, we had this weird policy when I was on the commission. If someone contacted us, the lawyer tells you you have to talk to everybody or nobody. Mm, So mm. we, because we're a commission trying to find things out, it had to be everybody. And for companies, everything, it meant we probably had to interview 600 companies, you know, that would come in and talk to you over the year. What was interesting was the education one. We would get requests to speak at universities or even middle schools or high schools. And, uh, and I usually, I do a lot of the university ones. Some of the other commissioners like Dr. Ravitch, Samantha Ravitch, mm-hmm. who's also here at FTD, um, would, uh, would, uh, uh, do them. But then the high school, middle school, I didn't do. But as it got later on, one of the most interesting experiences I had was speaking to a high school in upstate New York and, in the middle of it, it's virtual. This one young girl, 11th grader, gets up and, and starts asking me questions. And they're the most precise questions I've ever heard. She goes, Um, in 1998, when you were working at the White House, you argued that the cyber workforce was – federal cyber workforce was uh, 2,000 people a year short of uh, of hiring uh, and that you had plans that were going to fix it in 1998. And she goes, now that program is only hiring 400 people a year 23 <laughs> years later. And no press person had ever gone and researched what I'd said, 23 years earlier and then held me accountable for it. So it was really interesting. So I, I, after that, I said, you know, I'll do all the middle school and high school that come up. Well, who know. is
0: this person? Why didn't you hire her?
1: Well, I would, I mean, I think there's child labor laws, but um, that would who, be we who, don't care reason, reason one. You're and reason two stuff. is I hope she goes to yeah. a good school and becomes a cyber expert yeah. or a journalism expert, whatever she wants to be in her life. But uh, I would just say it was just one of those, it was a reminder to myself that the, uh, the smartest questions can come from the most unusual sources. Gives one hope about uh, young people. Um, are, are, you know, when we talk about or you
0: talked about, we mentioned the Cyber Solarium Commission. I, th- I think you need to explain what that was and where it got the name because Cyber Solarium Commission, it sounds like someplace you go to get a tan or something, you know.
1: Yeah. So uh, when I was working on the S- Senate Armed Services Committee for Senator McCain, this provision came up. It came from Senator Ben Sass. Uh, and, um, uh, Republican from Nebraska and who was in fact later a commissioner. So he brought it to Senator McCain. And I got to tell you, Senator McCain is no fan of commissions and reports. He's a man of action. He was a man of action. S- Senator McCain is like, you know, I, uh, I don't want to do this. And so myself and a couple other staffers came up and said, let's walk through everything that's happened over the last 10 years. And we walked them through Chinese intellectual property theft. And we've probably lost a trillion dollars worth of unrealized GDP. And we have that from wow. some other commissions that have studied it. Um The uh, North Korean attack on Sony, it went practically huh. unresponded, right? So North Korea does this attack. We don't even attribute it to the North Koreans for five months. And then when we do, we indict Four North Korean military <laughs> officers uh, amazingly, none have been extradited. No. that lack of an extradition treaty kicked in more importantly, I think all four of them got awards from Kim jong un <laughs> after we indicted them, so really that didn't work and then the one that really sunk home uh, one that really sunk home with him was the uh, Chinese theft of the Office of Personal Management Records, including Senator McCain's personal records his his answers to polygraphs things like that all all stolen, and then at that exact moment, we are dealing with the ramifications of the Russian cyber enabled information operations against the 2016 election. This is their use of bots and things like that to create false stories. Uh, that 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 element of the Russian uh stuff. Um my point is all of these were kicking in and then you know it, it, Senator McCain goes I get it. I don't like commissions, but we really need something to get it done. And he had this great idea. So he came back and said I'll accept this, but only if we have four serving congressmen, one you know two house, two senate, two Republican, two Democrat on the commission so they can study this, bring it back and immediately execute these things, you know, get them into law or get them into action. And that turned out to be prescient because, um, without those four legislative commissioners, and it turned out to be Senator Angus King, uh, independent from Maine caucuses with the Democrats, Senator Ben Sass, uh, as you said, a Republican rep- Nebraska, as you mentioned, uh, potentially heading the University of Florida soon, Representative Jim Langevin, Democrat of Rhode Island, by far the smartest congressional leader on cyber that i've ever come across hmm. in, in 20 years and then uh, representative mike gallagher a young republican from from wisconsin with and an fdd
0: association he is an
1: fdd nsa and he's an yeah. alumni of our uh, national security network uh, and uh, uh, fellows program and um Brilliant guy, yeah. and ironically he had written you asked where solarium came from yeah ben yeah. sass's team put it in and it was based on The Solarium Commission run by President Eisenhower. He, he comes to office in 1953. He's inheriting Truman's national security doctrine and he's very worried. Um, you know, uh, he also had the Republican, um, Convention plank, right? Which he you know, he became president very late in the game, you know, the nominee very late in the game so that the convention planks were all written and it had a very, John Foster Dulles had put in a very strong, aggressive policy against the Russians, kind of uh, not really containment, but like forward defense that would, uh, you know, roll back is what it was called, rolling back Soviet gains. And so, uh, Ike was smart. He said, look, I'm not just going to come in and change it myself. I'll have them study it. So he had three groups go study it. One led by George Kennan that looked at containment. That's good. He was the author of containment, had been recently fired by John Foster Dulles from the State Department, you know, as as Dulles came to Secretary of State. One led by Dulles Acolytes that looked at rollback and one led by the military that looked at Using strategic nuclear forces as your as your defense mechanism, so these three groups studied it for about uh a month to two months at fort McNair down in uh in d c and they came back and and the the men run the happened to be all men running it, but the men running it were the future leaders of our country it, ironically they'd been the planners you know macarthur's lead planner um Nimitz's lead planner, Eisenhower's lead planner from World War II. These are now like senior colonels, junior admirals, and generals. They run this thing. And later on, they become three and four-star generals. And they come back and they say, look, you need a, a certain type of containment, kind of a, a more aggressive containment strategy. Uh, it became known as, as as National Security Presidential Directive 162 and became really our strategy for the next 30 years dealing with the Soviet Union. And the nuclear stuff became the basis of mutual assured destruction. And later on, parts of it became the basis of flexible deterrence. So really a brilliant grouping. Um, it, it was the PhD topic for Representative Mike Gallagher doing his PhD when he was an NS, a fellow here. So really it all came together with this Cyberspace Solarium Commission. The idea is come up with a new strategic approach to dealing with cyber. And so that's how it got its name.
0: But Solarium... It's because they met in the solarium. That's right. So the final <laughs> briefing
1: was to get President Eisenhower. Um, uh, yeah, the, the initial meeting with Kennan, Dulles, and and um, and the National Security Advisor and Eisenhower was on the top level of the White House, which was known as the solarium. It's where Ike liked to go to reflect uh, when he was president.
0: You and Mark mentions the uh, the the Sony attack, so I just tease that out a little bit. What they did and why they did it and the harm it did. I just think it's worth that we because it's a good example of one kind of threat, not the only kind. One kind of threat we face from nefarious cyber actors. Talk about it a little bit, Sony.
2: Yeah, I'll talk about the high level perspective of that. Once they were able to attribute it, something that came out of that question itself is that it took us way too long to attribute.
0: In other words, just to figure out who this, who had done this.
2: Okay. Right. But the response was also too weak. we got to make a statement, signal in cyberspace what U.S. is capable of in terms of response.
0: Response was basically the indictment of four people who who didn't really care and they were kind of probably thrilled by it. That, So that was a meaningless response. Right. No cyber attack in retaliation. And also important, I want to get this in. I think we understand that what made North Koreans angry was a movie that Sony made about North Korea. It was called The Interview, right? That's right.
1: So I, I think, and I think the type of attack was, um, you know, getting a little more granular. The type of attack was a uh, first, they da- you know they they made it so that Sony couldn't access its own servers, and uh, and they bricked a lot of servers, so they couldn't data was no longer available to anyone. Additionally, they grabbed emails. From this and used them for reputational damage. I mean, this is now, as you go forward seven years, these are two or three of the core aspects of ransomware. You know, you either deny someone access to their own data or you grab the records, you know, usually the emails between the CEO and the general counsel about the most recent sexual harassment case, and then you begin to slowly reveal it for blackmail purposes. The Chinese did it. I mean excuse me the North Koreans did it for punitive reasons just like you said probably because of the interview you know it's they've never officially said that but they certainly said we're going to do something about the interview and then this happened um, I want to pick up on attribution that's a great point you know this isn't the only case of it we are slow on attribution perpetually uh there and and it makes no sense because we know it was North Korea shortly after the attack we the intelligence community But our ability to prove it was different. And I compare this to say there's a great example where the Saudi, uh, the uh, Iranians have attacked the Saudi Arabian Aramco facilities with a kinetic weapon. You know, they launched a cruise missile on drones and struck it. We saw it after launch. And within three to four minutes, we're announcing there's been an attack. And then, after you know, just a few hours, we're directly attributing it to Iran because we're very comfortable with that intelligence. We saw a plume of a you know of a of a of a high energy launch. We tracked vehicles moving, and then we saw an explosion. And we said, you know, Colonel Mustard in the library with a candle. (laughs) You know, know, Saudi Arabia with cruise missiles uh, attacked by Iran. Then a cyber attack, same facility. We'll watch it and we'll wait. Three, four, five, six months before we attribute it, even though it's still you know Colonel Mustard in, in the library, but now instead of a candle, he's using a computer device. You know, in other words, my point is that when it comes to cyber, we're much slower to attribute. And I think it's our lack of our our, our lack of um, of, uh, of comfort with the quality of the data that we're using to attribute.
0: Another point I want to make here, and that is, okay, we failed to deter north korea by denial in other words suggesting oh if you do this you will be so sorry we will do terrible things that didn't work then we had a chance to deter by punishment right by saying oh you did this once you won't want to do this again because here are the consequences that failed too because they didn't care however their cyber attack succeeded and what i mean by that is we people think oh well too bad for sony haha ha, cost them some money but the fact of the matter is they made this film called The Interview. I urge everybody out here to go, go watch it. Very funny. It's very, it's satirical. Let me tell you, 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 if you disagree with me, Sony will never make a satirical movie about North Korea again. And neither will any other studio in Hollywood. What does that mean? It means we've been deterred. It means our freedom of speech has been restricted. Going forward, Americans are less free today because of that attack on Sony. The North Koreans have won. And this is very important to realize. There are all sorts of ways that the North Koreans, the Chinese, the Russians, uh, Iranians, certainly the Iranians who are right now designating uh, people here at FDD as terrorists and because we're for sanctions. They're going to tr- – these nations are going to try to restrict our freedoms, not least our freedom of speech. And North Korea is a pioneer and the Sony attack was a successful one. And every other enemy of the United States says we can restrict their freedoms at home,
1: at home. That's a great, great position. You give me two thoughts on that, uh, Cliff. The first is um, North Korea has evolved into basically – a, uh, a cyber gang, you know, masquerading as a nation state. I mean, they really are at that mm-hmm. point. And they use they nuclear used, weapons, by With the way. nuclear weapons. They used to sell counterfeit. Fifty and hundred dollar bills, super bills, uh, to fund all their nuclear weapons development, their purchases from AQ Khan and such. They no longer have to do that. We 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 kind of cut that off to some degree. They did illegal sales of coal and really really bad oil, uh, you know, dirty oil to um, uh, to China and to other countries. We've cut a lot of that off, Uh, not all of it. But the, the last resource they had to get at cash is now this cyber-enabled criminal activity. And they do a lot of ransomware and a lot of theft. Um, the other thing you remind me is that getting back to the commission, um, what we had kind of determined was there was a threshold below which uh, deterrence didn't apply in cyberspace. In other words, there's a threshold above it, like Russia and China don't take down our, our northeast power grid. They don't do it because they know we have a very capable offensive cyber capability and a lot of other tools that would punish them for doing that. I think that's in effect right now to some degree in the Ukraine issue with, with Russia mm-hmm. is that we have a very sophisticated capability greater than the Russian to do mm-hmm. harm to them. But where where deterrence wasn't working was there was some level beneath which criminal behavior, um, this North Korean, you know, this North Korean attack on Sony, the OPM thefts, I mean, they stole 24 million Office of, you know, record, Office of Personnel Management, yeah. 24 million security records, all the most closely guarded personal foibles and secrets that someone admits to in their clearance thing. The Chinese stole that um over a 2 year period and we did nothing. Yeah again you no know, d- no, deterrence no deterrence beforehand
0: no punishment afterwards of consequence. So
1: we had to figure out how to lower that bar of acceptable behavior in lo- in cyberspace down to something that really is acceptable. And that's where the the we developed the uh, 82 recommendations in our original report and that's you know what we're now G- G1 and I have been assessing over the last few months. And, and just
0: one other digression or commercial refugee, the, uh, the the North Koreans do have nuclear weapons. They have nuclear weapons in large part because diplomacy failed. There were various talks, including, I think, in 1994, and President Clinton at that point said, okay, we've got to deal with them. We're giving them a nuclear power that will not be uh, transferable into nuclear weapons. We're giving them, I think, oil, money, all kinds of things, and you know, we've got an agreement here, and that agreement was a fatally flawed agreement, which is why they have nuclear weapons now. Why do I mention this now? Because one of FTD's big projects for years has been to say that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action – it's not a plan of action. It's not comprehensive, and it won't stop the Iranians from getting nuclear weapons. And right now, there's a weaker, shorter version that the Biden administration is still trying to get the Iranians to accept. <laughs> Happily, they won't accept this good deal. But the same thing—it's very important to understand—we have an experience with exactly these kinds of agreements failing because we have we push forward bad agreements and pretend that they're successful. And this was another experience. So we so we have this cyber gang with nuclear weapons. Testing them, missiles over Japan, um, and uh, and we do not have
1: an adequate re-
0: re- response.
1: No, I agree. I mean, you go back to the 1930s to determine that agreements made with authoritarian regimes have uh, you know poor. And and I'd even refer to the Soviets. You know, their uh, Rippentrop Ribbentrop you know, Pact that that, that <laughs> didn't go too well either. So even between authoritarian regimes, agreements aren't worth the paper they're written on. And I and I think you point very you know. Uh, very accurately to the same problem with North Korea, Iran, and Russia today.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: All right. We'll get back to this. So uh, the Cyber
0: Solarium Commission, can you tick off a specific achievement just so people say, oh, I understand now how it, what it did useful in the two and a half years or so that it was functioning?
1: So the first achievement I'll say is a weird one, uh, and then I'll give one that's probably a little more granular. The first is that we got we have now gotten about 50, 55 pieces of legislation done it, it, on a bipartisan level in a highly hyper partisan environment, which is to say we were able to successfully transition cybersecurity into a nonpartisan issue hmm. and then hmm. break down the things that needed to get done. And I would, I would challenge someone to find an issue on which more legislation has been accomplished over the last three years than cybersecurity. I think total, in addition to our fifty-five from the commission, another one hundred and fifteen pieces of legislation have passed inside various bills and acts. And we use every bill, any bill, you know, sh- you know, snaking its way through the system. Whether it's a National Defense Authorization Act, an Appropriations Bill, the uh, the Infrastructure Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, the Chips and Science Act. We've used it all. I mean, if they na- want to name a uh, post office after Cliff May, I'll figure out how to slap a piece of cybersecurity, you know, uh, provision on the backside of it. So I, th- you know, I think we've been very successful. In that.
0: And it's legislation that, in some way, has made us at least a little safer, yeah. a little more secure.
1: So, a so great now, to get into that example, we created the National Cyber Director. So historically, we've had no strategic leader on cybersecurity at the White House, um, and to the degree that we've had temporary people appointed. Who are not Senate confirmed inside the White House, who come and go at the president's, uh, kind of at the, the president's, uh, discretion. Just the whole office can come and go and it's gone. You could go on a bipartisan level from Clinton to Bush to Obama, uh, to Trump to Biden. It's, it's waxed and waned. What we said was that's not acceptable. Um, the same thing, by the way, happened for response to pandemics. When I worked at the NSC in 1998, 99, we had a very strong, centralized leadership that i think had it been in place in 2020 we'd have had a slightly different response to COVID. it at least have been more organized in the federal in place, government yeah. Yeah, yeah i mean what happened in the end was one brilliant you know young leader at the white house matt pottinger who oh, was sure. the, uh, the at the time i think he was also the working with FDD. i that's should right. say he's, he's chairman a, of our asia program that's yeah. and uh, and a uh board member of uh, of our uh, yes different groups and so he's but he fanta- he he was a reporter in china spoke the uh, language was getting phone calls from friends in wuhan mm. telling him hey what you're hearing about this in terms of how it's passed between you know in other words you had a very ad hoc method right. doing this that's not the way you get Things done, so we determined was, hey, you need actual strategic leadership at the White House. We have 101 federal departments and agencies, which means we have 101 interpretations of how to do information technology security. Uh, We have 16 national critical infrastructures, you know, that work the public-private partnership of how do you secure all this cyber battle space, which isn't owned and operated by the government, like every plane and yeah, tank and, yeah. and submarine is. So you have all these different things that that drive you apart and create silos. We said, we're going to bring this together in the national cyber director. We have done that. Um, and our commission has stood strongly behind. One of our commissioners, Chris Inglis, has become the Senate, the President Biden appointed, Senate confirmed uh, national Cyber Director, and we've given them the largest staff that we've ever had, or something that's 100, 100 plus people at the White House. That's very unusual to to run organizational, uh, regulatory, budget. Strategy, policy development, all the kind of stuff we're going to need, and they're finally coming into force. He's at about seventy-five percent Manning and ready to go. How does
0: that? How does he relate to Anne Newberger, who is also uh, who somebody we know and yep. known for some time? Yeah.
1: So Anne's job was they. To the Biden administration's credit, and uh as soon as they came in on January 21st, they had her in place as a deputy national security advisor, and that's been exceptionally helpful because it's taking us a year to set up Inglis's office. So in the mm. meantime, she's handling both the offensive and defensive sides of national cybersecurity. I think over time, her defensive side cuts over to Inglis and, and his Senate confirmed because his role can have oversight, and I think one of the things we've learned over the last six years is that you know co- you know congressional oversight is a critical element of of uh, effective national security, and uh, and the uh, and so having um, having English as a Senate confirmed official really gives you that, and then Anne will continue to run and has run effectively our international uh, integration and offensive execution you know uh, offensive cyber operations execution that has been exceptionally important during this ukraine conflict where you know we have played an an increasingly larger role in organizing not just the international Consortium that deals with weapons deliveries to Ukraine and economic support to Ukraine, but also cyber support to Ukraine. And, and Anne's led that. So I think there's a balance in that job and there probably will be friction. And that's, I would rather have friction because two people are trying to do the right thing than a lack of friction because no one's trying to do the right thing. So I'm excited about that. And then there's a third, uh, element to this, which is the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency. An agency at the Department of Homeland Security that the commission very much improved in terms of authorizations what it could legally do, and we helped take its budget from 1.8 billion to 3 billion, so about a 60 percent increase over three years and that's empowering uh, it and its leader, a, a, a woman named Jen Easterly, uh, to really lead at the kind of operational tactical level the federal government's work with the private sector.
0: If you want to tell maybe uh, see if you you both agree on this? Should Congress have kept the Cyber Solarium Commission going rather than sunsetting it? Should it? It, it sounds like it was so useful. Why not keep it around? We've got, we got these threats still persist.
2: We're continuing that work, so I think it's okay that they sunset. And I say this confidently because the assessment that we've done really showed the progress that we have to make and how to get there. The work that we're doing is we're continuing to address that, and we're working with various public and private sector partners and industry leaders, and that was part of the whole assessment approach and the research that went into that. Mark is talking about the importance of NCD empowering CISA. I could really see that in my own work because as I'm providing this research, I'm looking at documents from CISA about implementing these new programs and initiatives and documents that came about because Chris Inglis is asking federal agencies to reset their priorities and their priorities for budget. That's good. We need the resources in order to continue building national resilience in cyber. We're doing the work. So I think it's okay. The commission has sunset because their work continues.
0: And, and, and of course, uh, you should just explain how, it, after it sunsetted, it ended up here at FDD as 2.0, right? That, that was probably yeah. your idea.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, and, uh, and the commissioner. So we went to Senator King, and, and G1's exactly right. You know, we had gotten a lot done. Commissions need to sunset. The government. You know, government, good government is efficient, effective government, right? You don't just keep going and running like a, running a shadow congressional committee in the background. And that would offend congressional committees too. I think if we'd kept going, we would have lost some of our effectiveness with the committee. So they'd be like, when are you guys going to stop, you know, trying to push us around through this? So, um, and, and Senator King and Representative uh, Gallagher and Langevin uh, uh, came uh, to me and said, "We want to keep going. We think the right way is a non-governmental organization." And so um, uh, I took a look at it, and there's there's some requirements. When you're working with congressmen, you definitely have to ha- find a location that does not take uh, foreign money, uh, and uh, you know when you take a look at U.S. think tanks. Um, especially here in the DC area, that is not an attribute I'd ascribe to a lot of them. And so FTD is one of the few that, uh, that, uh, has a, 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 a strong bipartisan foreign policy and national security focus with a cyber center already existing and, uh, you know, a commitment to not take, uh, foreign government, uh, donations. And as a, as a result, and, and I would say, I, there wasn't a lot of like secondary and tertiary choices when I described those attributes, um, and we had an extra benefit. One of our commissioners, Samantha Ravitch, uh, was uh, at FTD as chairman of the CCTI so, um, Senator King and, uh, and Sass and Representative Langston Gallagher said that's a good place to go. Uh, we still have relationships. Two of our other commissioners, um, have relationships with think tanks and they are play a significant role. And in fact, one of the think tanks, the McCrary Institute at Auburn, a disadvantage of being located in Auburn, Alabama. I'm sure it's a wonderful place, <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's a pretty long car ride, uh, and plane flight from DC. So they do what we do a lot of work with them with McCrary's researchers, but. Um, we're housed at FTD. FTD provides you know, effectively a lot of in kind support to us uh by providing the overhead and then uh I did some we do some separate fundraising to bring funds in for CSC 2.0 to work the staff issues very specifically with this. And that's the other thing, by not being a commission we no longer get federal funds for staffing. And that was the one thing Senator King asked me, do you think you can, you know, raise you'll know, get the appropriate funds for staff? I said yes, we can. I was confident we could just uh just from some initial discussions and then and the other good thing is, is their congressional staffs or personal staffs still have an open door with us. We can, you know, task, you know, get task and get responses very quickly. And then they handle the submissions of things, which is something we used to do. They handle it. And that's actually in some ways better. It gives the senators and the congressmen, you know, kind of tactile ownership of the issues as they push them through. And we rely on their relationships and Senator King and Representative Langevin, particularly with their experiences in the Senate, long track records in the Senate and the House have a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle.
0: All right. So we mentioned earlier that there are still some gaping holes that need to be filled in terms of America's cybersecurity. Why don't you mention what is, you know, one or two, what one or two of those holes that, you know, that keep you up at night, that you think about, that you worry about, that we haven't yet filled and we need to?
1: You know That's a it's a great question. Look, there's areas. I would say there was a whole – in our work, I think we did a good job reorganizing and prioritizing efforts in the government. We did a great job with the Department of Defense uh, cyber uh, strengthening. And we did a pretty good job with the international norms and reorganizing State Department. And I expect the Cyber Diplomacy Act to pass in this National Defense Authorization Act. But in, in advance of that, the State Department is organized properly. The president is nominated and the Senate has confirmed an ambassador – to be our cyber uh, uh, digital policy leader, uh, a man named Nate Fick, now Ambassador Nate Fick. Um, one area where we did not make the kind of headway that that I think we needed is in uh, building that public-private collaboration between the private sector and the federal government. And uh, wh- what's what's happened there is that each side, and this has been going on for 23 years, has a lot of trepidation. Like, I'm not sure I want to share all my proprietary information with you or potentially embarrassing or inflammatory information with you without understanding how you'll protect that and what am I getting back in advantage? And the problem here, of course, is There are a bunch of systemically important entities, the most important, like 200 things, whether they're banks, power companies, water distribution, hospital systems that have to be preserved and protected in a, in an engage, you know, when you're in the middle of a crisis or contingency with, with China or Russia, both of whom have, we acknowledge, have done due diligence in installing malware or malicious software in our systems that can be exploited during wartime. So those top 200, we kind of have to have an agreement with them that like, you'll take this minimum level of security standard. You'll third party check it and, uh, and you'll let us know how that's going. And if, and if you do that. We'll provide you some liability protection against an attack. I mean, this is a pretty good compact of benefits and burdens on both the companies and the government. And additionally, we'll provide a speed of data information exchange. In other words, right now when we're telling them, oh, we saw this kind of threat signal, we send it through Slack, a Slack channel, or through email and and not speed of data where it's going right to there. And we highly classify things for private companies who only have one or two people cleared to read it, which is not effective and efficient, so there's things we have to do. That kind of work has not happened, and we've got to move that. To me, that's the biggest bar that has to move over the next two years.
0: And by the way, this is, I, I this is going to be hard. I think in the U.S. because uh, if you if you own a corporation, right, you have a certain sense of your own independence. You don't want to be hurted, or you don't want to. It's not the same problem in the People's Republic of China because you have military civil That's their term. In other words, the Communist Party, Xi Jinping says, every company will do what I tell them to do. Every executive of every company will do what I tell them to do. They will supply any information I require and they will take orders from me on cybersecurity and anything else. And this is, I'm afraid, this is something not even very well understood on Wall Street. Where they think, oh, we can invest in these companies. We can produce solar panels over there. I'm not too worried. I I've heard this stuff about the Uyghurs. They say it's not whatever. They don't seem to understand that they are investing in this military civil fusion. There's no such thing as an independent, a truly independent corporation in China. That a lot of people would say, you're crazy, Cliff. But I, I, I'm right on this, am I not, you on? Yeah. I'm totally right. <laughs> so, and I think
1: two people who'd agree with you are Nate Pacharczyk and Emily Dubreuil, yeah. here from FTD, both fellows here who've made it clear in a number of uh, of policy memos that exactly explain the civil-military fusion, the Chinese uh, you know use of state-owned enterprises, and even their most recent piece on the weaponization of capital, where they've used their investments in companies to grab um, U.S. intellectual property or prevent the U.S. government from investing in in startups. So I think that there's a strong argument for everything you're saying. And my biggest fear are companies who have a very short-sighted view and say, I'm going to go do a joint venture in China and make a lot of money over the next five to seven years, which probably will help my CEO compensation package mightily. In the meantime, I recognize or I allow or I admit that my intellectual property is being slowly stolen in the joint venture. And in fact, I can see a factory being built several kilometers away, and suddenly my local nationals are beginning to move over to that company. And they'll even hire a few of the Americans from my company to lead it. And suddenly I'll have a competitor on the horizon. So 10 to 15 years from now, I've actually created my rival, and I've given China their own production facilities. But boy, did I have a very successful five to seven years.
0: We've talked about North Korea as a, uh, as a nefarious actor in cyberspace. You've talked about China. Let's talk a little bit about Russia because that, 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 that also is my concern here is among other things is this. Okay. We've got, we've got Putin waging a war against Ukraine, trying to wipe it off the earth as a nation. Right. We have him not doing well militarily. You and I have talked about this at length, Mark, but he's considering maybe it would help me to use tactical nuclear weapons, more for the, the the shock and awe than for any real military value. Now, one thing we could do to impose consequences afterwards is not use tactical nuclear weapons ourselves, probably wouldn't for all sorts of reasons, but we might say, okay, let's do something to Putin that's really harsh on the cyber scale. Let's, you know, close down all his lights for a few days and show him he can – but You have to be able to do that. You have to have superiority in cyberspace. And in a way, what I'm getting to is, uh, you know, Brad Bowman recently uh, did a foreign policy podcast with an Air Force general and he talked about superiority in the skies, establishing that superiority and how Putin didn't establish it in Ukraine and how bad that's been. So what I'm getting to is the idea, do we have cyberspace superiority so that we could warn Putin, maybe deter him or punish him afterwards by saying, use tactical nuclear weapons. Let me tell you what we can do to you or prove to him what we can do to you in a cyber attack that he could not retaliate against on the same level. That's what I don't know. I'm sure people are struggling to try to figure that out, right?
2: I think it's difficult to compare apples to oranges when it comes to cyber capabilities. You know, I cannot tell you what Russia is capable of and what they're not capable of. But something that I know they're lacking that we have in the U.S. is a coalition of allies and partners who share very similar views on cybersecurity and what responsible behaviors look like in that space. That's one of our strong suits. That is the area that the assessment shows that we've done really well over the years.
1: Well, oh, G1, that's a great point on allies. And in fact, recently here at FDD, we've written um, some pieces on this. The most, uh, The most germane one is that the United States needs to really take a look at how it and its most cyber capable NATO partners work with the newly entered Eastern European countries to improve their cyber capacity. And this is both on the defensive and offensive side the defensive side, we saw this play out in Ukraine, where from 2018 to 2021, the United States, through both the State Department and U.S. Cyber Command, provided significant uh, technical and uh, resource assistance to the Ukrainian cyber defense forces. And to some degree, that along with, of course, the great resilience of the Ukrainian people themselves, that has played a role in making Russian tactical cyber operations less effective. The other end of this is what we just saw in Albania, where they were attacked by the uh Iranians and uh and in fact cut off diplomatic relations with Iran. Uh and that's a country where we should start taking a look at how do we build up as a NATO ally, how do we and the UK and the French and the Germans work with the Albanians to improve their cyber defenses and then make a conscious decision whether we want to help these countries develop their own offensive cyber
2: capabilities over time. There was a NATO summit this summer. They released these strategic document about if there is a major cyber attack against one of the NATO member states, it could potentially trigger Article 5, which means that they could take any action in order to retaliate. And Russia doesn't have that. I think that's a very important distinction between us and the Russians. And
0: just so people understand, Article 5 is part of the NATO treaty. It means that an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all, like all can respond. So talk a little bit about the whole concept of cyber diplomacy. I don't think most people know much about that.
2: The Senate Foreign Relations Committee recently voted Nathaniel Fick as the first ever cyber ambassador at the State Department. And passing Cyber Diplomacy Act will clarify the ambassador's roles and responsibilities which then in turn would empower the Department of State to coordinate international cyber activities with allies and establish international standards and coalitions to shape norms and behaviors in cyberspace. And it's almost done. It just needs to pass the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act. And we can't forget that cyber diplomacy is part of the deterrence strategy. And it's especially important because it'll give us the multilateral leverage to impose sanctions on foreign adversaries who violate responsible behaviors and norms in cyberspace.
0: So, and maybe flesh this out a little bit, and and bring in, for example, Solar Winds was a Russian attack against the U.S. Uh, for which we
1: also did not respond in any uh, robust fashion. Am I right? Correct. So, here's what I'd say: I, I worry about Russia. You mentioned tactical weapons. Yo, know, I see a significant cyber attack on another country's. Uh, economy or, you know, public health and safety is a strategic weapon. So I think you have to look at these strategic weapons his, his nuclear arsenal and his cyber arsenal. And probably you could throw his chemical weapons in there as well. But I think. Before he uses the nuclear arsenal, I really think we'll see the cyber either against Western Europe or against the United States. I do think it's coming. And for those who think, well, shields up, which has been our effort for the last year is going to stop him. I, I refer you to solar winds yeah. where only 15 months ago, the Russians were running rampant through our systems with us completely unaware. They were in dozen plus federal agencies, including reading the mail of cabinet-level officials. Uh, they were in thousands of companies. We don't know exactly how many uh, because it hasn't been revealed, although Microsoft did allow that from their cloud, serp, uh, cloud service provider, Microsoft Azure, there were significant penetrations of no- numerous companies. We detected this just by luck. So we have to remember the SVR, the Russian intelligence agency, is skilled. So is the GRU, the military intelligence agency. They're skilled at cyber warfare. Winds happen to be espionage they could have easily turned it into an attack damage. They chose not to because they exploited the espionage for either commercial benefit or uh, or actual you know old old timey you know gathering information on government agencies. My point on this is Russia is skilled. At some point I believe probably when the oil and gas sanctions from Europe actually kick in because they really haven't yet. The oil and gas sanctions that are on Russia are really the U.S. deciding not to purchase these things, which is the Europe, which was not significant and easily covered by India, China, name your country. But as Europe begins to not take those in significant amounts and they feel pressure on the economic pressure. That's when I think Putin might lash out with a cyber tool against Western Europe and the United States. And I think it would be dramatic. I think the Department of Homeland Security has stated very clearly that Russia and China particularly have installed this malware, malicious software, pre-existing for future use in our electrical power grids, our nuclear propulsion plant operating systems, our financial services systems, uh, our public health and safety, and our water systems we are definitely at risk and uh, and we have to be careful and to your initial question of are we capable yes I would say the most capable cyber warriors in in the in the world are the United States, both in terms of capability plus capacity. I'd say the second most effective country is probably Israel, probably a, a good capability, you know, close to or on par with the United States, but a capacity that's smaller by dint of a smaller military and unit eighty two hundred their their version of uh, cyber uh, cyber command. Then you have Russia and and China. And again, Russia has pretty good capability, pretty good capacity. Uh, I would say actually Russia has very good capability, pretty good capacity. And then China has pretty good capability and a lot of capacity. There are a lot of cyber warriors in their version of cyber command and national security agency.
0: That raises this question for me. Should and are American diplomats, do you suppose, letting the Russians know, if you close down our grids – If you cyber attack us, you will be very, very sorry. I don't think we can deter them through denial because if they have the malware in place, they can use it. We might be able to say the punishment will be so severe you don't want to do this, but I'm not sure we can and are. So it raises two questions, and these are going to be probably my final questions. I'll let you talk about anything else you want to talk about. But one is if Russia were to do something, some cyber attack. Do we have the means to do something very bad to Putin in exchange? And what would that be? And should it not be our goal as a nation to achieve superiority in cyberspace and make that clear to all players in the world? Or is that an impossible dream?
1: So yes, I think our diplomats communicate that. I think G1 earlier mentioned signaling. Um, I don't think we do a great job signaling like at the presidential White House level, like this is what we're gonna do because it gets so quickly it gets into red lines, which have not gone well um, for previous administrations. If you think back to Syria and chemical weapons. So um, but we do need to do strong signaling. We have these capabilities. Um we are the most powerful cyber offensive cyber operators, you know, country in the world. I think that's true for almost any military warfare area. Happens to be true for cyber. And that's a combination of both military Title 10 and intelligence title fifty forces we're very good on both sides of that uh, of that coin and uh and I think we we need to continue to transmit that because just like in everything else. The United States is a deterrent. We are not a coercion-based country. We're a deterrence-based country. We believe in deterring the adversaries instead of coercing them into action. So I believe in deterrence by denial plus deterrence by cost imposition by punishment. And I believe you have to, you know, show the carrot and hold the stick. And we have a, a big stick, you know, for for this issue. And and I think we could use it. But here's the one challenge: we're a much more fragile. We're in the glassiest of all houses. We have the, uh, just such a highly interconnected, interwoven, cyber-orchestrated economy, and we benefit from that. That that makes us billions and billions of dollars every year. That integration, but it also makes you highly vulnerable to an adversary with a tool. You know what
0: else? Putin is sort of like a raging bull. He can take a punch and he's willing to take punches. There's 30,0, 400,000 highly educated young people have fled the country since he started this war, fled Russia. And he says, so what? I don't care. I don't need them. Can you imagine 400,000 of the most educated people in America leaving the country, going to Australia or New Zealand? This would be an unbelievable catastrophe for America. And you think it's even debated in the media in Russia? I don't think so. Let me ask you for your final thoughts on this or any other questions. There's a million questions I could have asked you guys that I didn't. We didn't have time for, but there's other points you want to make. I want to give you a chance to do that. But I'm, I'm interested in your th- your theory on whether Putin is thinking, okay, I, I need to do something dramatic because I'm not going to win this militarily.
2: He could, but I don't think it's in his best interest.
0: But what can they do? What will they do? What do they have the nerve to do in response? A punch I can't absorb.
2: I think Putin is worried about what we would do because we're just as much of a wild card to him as he is to us. Putin knows that we'll retaliate with whatever means it takes to achieve our end, secure the U.S., and impose costs. He had already lost his credibility when he decided to attack Ukraine, not just defense, but with economic trade partners as well. Starting a cyber attack against the U.S. would have a ripple effect on the global economy, which would not be in his best interest. Cyber attacks could definitely lead to an economic consequence. Some of the research that I've been doing shows that there are choke points in our trade systems or economic systems that I think cyber could really impact. It's the same for Russia.
1: What you, and what have you said in the past about the I mean, you've been looking at the maritime transportation sector. Where are those choke points?
2: There's several major ports in the U.S. For example, the port of Los Angeles brings in $259 billion in trade just last year. Compared to pre-pandemic levels, it's pretty significant. And that's just one port. At least 80% of global trade goes through the maritime transportation system in the U.S. So it says a lot about how cybersecurity really is in the intersection of economy and national security.
1: Well, that's a great point, Juwan. And I'm looking forward to your report on the maritime transportation security, which FTD should have out uh, beginning of next year. Because I think that's going to highlight an area, one of those, critical inf- those 16 critical infrastructures. Where, and there we have a good government shepherd, the U.S. Coast Guard, but they are under resourced. And there, the private sector is highly internationalized, so it's hard to impose standards on them. And I worry a lot. You're right. The Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach is phenomenal because, you know, it's all automated. There's these cranes and gantries that move everything. And it's when, when something's highly automated, G. one and I immediately think it's highly vulnerable because highly automated tends to be driven by these cyber systems. Final thought, Cliff, look, when we started the Cyberspace Learning Commission, at the first meeting, um, a friend of mine who had been who was on the AI Commission, uh, Obi Bektari said, hey, invite in these two PhDs. So I invited in these two uh, 35-year-olds who'd done PhDs. Their PhDs had been on how to run successful commissions. First of all, <laughs> not something I would have thought was a PhD thing. No. And on top of it, they'd each published a book. And I don't think these were self-published. I mean, I think a publisher published a book. So these two guys come in and they say, look, you're going to be lucky if 10% of your recommendations are carried out. Mm-hmm. And you'll be even luckier if any of them are not low-hanging fruit, if you get any of your major things done. And I think it's fair to tell you that so far we had uh, 82 recommendations overall, 52 of them legislative Um And we have accomplished 60% are fully implemented or directly on track to implementation of those original 82 recommendations, including 60% of the high-hanging fruit, the harder ones. And then, you know, another 25% are making, you know, are on a track that we think can get there. And that's what CSC 2.0 is working. We're oversighting that first 60%. Are you really implementing it right? And we're push, helping pursue that next 25%. That final 15%, a few of them are really aspirational, like reorganize Congress, you know, but, or, you know, provide liability protection to, you know, large areas of the, of the economy, things that probably aren't going to happen. But that other 85%, 85% 85% is a lot bigger number than 10%. Um, Angus King likes to say that if his accomplishment rate were a batting average, he'd be making $400 million a year <laughs> playing for the $400 million in 10-year contracts playing for the New York Yankees. And, and I think he's about right. So I, I'm proud of what we did. And I'm really proud of what G1 and myself and Annie Fixler and the rest of the CCTI team at CSC 2.0 are doing to continue to move forward this national security issue for the country and really for the free world. All right. Um, Vital, critical work to make Americans
0: safer at a time that's going to remain dangerous for many, many, many years to come. I don't see the end of that. But I think uh, I I, I think certainly hope listeners now understand the work you're doing better and why it's, it's so important. So, G1, thank you, Mark. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who have been with us for this entire hour here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to Foreign at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others, and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening foreign policy.